So, this is the self-development with tactics. Book. So, uh, today we're once again going to talk about sapiens. Sapiens, one of the best things that I've gone through in quite some time, to be honest, you know, even though like there's a lot of good books and a lot of good uh, articles as well and, and, and interviews and, and all of that stuff that I've had the pleasure to listen to or read or just consume. Let's put it like this. I think that's the easiest way. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be amazing. I at least hope. And we will see you after the intro. You know, as, as we are always doing that. As we are always doing that. And I've, by the way, actually seen that the audio quality is pretty fucking neat at this point in time. Um, with all the editing and with all the just a little bit of soundproofing. I'm actually not just going too crazy with it. And I think you can still hear it in the recording then that there is a little bit of echo. But, um, but I'm actually quite okay with that. You know, I'm quite okay. It might even be... <laughs> nice window there. <laughs> might even be uh, not that of a bad thing. I actually got to have to really... Loki have to take a shear, but I want to record this at first and then do that. I don't know if this is a really dumb idea. I kind of assume that it is, to be honest, uh, but we're going to see. <laughs> it's actually really fucking dumb, like really insanely fucking dumb. Anyway, a permanent revolution, which is the next thing uh, that we're going to talk about there. The Industrial Revolution turned the timetable and the assembly line into a template for almost all human activities. Could you please? Thank you. Go away. Shortly after factories imposed their timeframes on human behavior, schools to adopt precise timetables, followed by hospitals, government offices, and grocery stores. Even in places devoid of assembly lines and machines, the timetable became king. If the shift at the factory ends at 5 p.m., the local pub had better to be open for business by 5.02. Which, I mean, it makes sense that if a really big part of a system works in a in a in a certain way that you have to adjust to that so that um, that you're not gonna miss out on business. You know, if just factory workers are gonna be there and there and there, then you're also gonna have to be there and there and there. So, and I think it is, I think it is still the case or maybe it should be the case. I do believe that it is something that maybe some business owners do not really give a fuck about because, because of course, like it's not that of a nice thing that you have to, um, that you, let's put it like this, that you have to be empathetic, that you have to think about other people, that you have to think about just all kinds of shit. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, this is probably, I, I, I mean, I can understand that it is a little bit of a, of a fucked up thing, just because there is another thing that you gotta have to do, and there is another person you have to think about, and so on and so on and so on. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the daily life of almost human of most humans ran its course within three ancient frames the nuclear family the extended family and the local intimate community most people worked in their family business the family farm or the family workshop for example or they worked in their neighbor's family business the family was also the welfare system the health system the education system the construction industry the trade union the pension fund the insurance company the radio the television the newspaper the bank and even the police yet Throughout history, such imagined communities played second fiddle to intimate communities of several dozen people who knew each other well. The intimate communities fulfilled the emotional needs of their members and were essential for everyone's survival and welfare. In the last two centuries, the intimate communi communities have withered, leaving uh, imagined communities to fill in the emotional vacuum, or vacuum, however. 
the two most important examples for the rise of such imagined communities are the nation and the consumer tribe. In recent decades, national communities have been de increasingly eclipsed by tribes of customers who do not know one another intimately but share the same consumption habits and interests and therefore feel part of the same consumer tribe and define themselves as such. This sounds very strange but we are surrounded by examples. Madonna fans for example constitute a consumer tribe. They define themselves largely by shopping. They buy Madonna concert tickets, CDs, posters, shirts and ringtones and thereby define who they are. And and, and you know I'm not quite sure but I think it is even like a very minor group there you know i don't know let's think about advocates of of brands in general like nike or whatever that might be like okay i'm only gonna wear nike i'm not gonna wear any adidas stuff or adidas since it is a german brand uh, or uh puma or whatnot i'm only gonna wear nike because this is who i am you know so that it is actually your identity hmm hmm in the year 2000, wars caused the deaths of 310,000 individuals and violent crime killed another 520,000. Each and every victim is a world destroyed, a family ruined, friends and relatives scared for life. Yet from a market perspective, these 830,000 victims compromised only 1.5% of the 56 million people who died in 2000. That year, 1.26 million people died in car accidents. 2.25% of total mortality and 815,000 people committed suicide, which is 1.45%, which is actually really a lot, by the way. It's insane. In 1964, a military dictatorship was established in Brazil. It ruled the country until 1985. During these 20 years, several thousand Brazilians were murdered by the regime. Thousands more were imprisoned and tortured. Yet, even in the worst years, the average Brazilian in Rio de Janeiro was far less likely to die at human hands than the average Warani. Aravit or Yanomamo are indigenous people who live in the depths of the Amazon forest without army, police, or prisons. Anthropological studies have indicated that between a quarter and and a half of the manfolk die sooner or later in violent conflicts over poverty, woman, or prestige. Which, um, like, I don't know, I think this is human life, isn't it? Yet the Soviet elite and the communist regimes through most of Eastern Europe, Romania and Serbia were the exceptions, chose not to use even a tiny fraction of this military power. When its members realized that communism was bankrupt, they reinforced for the renounced force, admitted their failure, packed their suitcases and went home. Gorbachev and his colleagues gave up without a struggle not only the Soviet conquest of the world or of World War II, but also the much older Tsarists' conquests in the Baltic, the Ukraine, the Caucasus and Central Asia. It is chilling to contemplate what might have happened if Gorbachev or actually Gorbachev, I think, rather. Either it is misspelled or it's just actually written like that, but spelled or pronounced in a different way. Had behaved like the Serbian leadership or like the French in Algeria. For real peace is not the mere absence of war. Real peace is the implausibility of war. There has never been real peace in the world. Between 1871 and 1940, a European war remained a plausible eventuality and the expectation of war dominated the thinking of armies, politicians and ordinary citizens alike. I think at least in Europe at this point in time, everything is quite fine, isn't it? You know, of course, uh, maybe the United States might be having some problems with some Eastern countries, like just really not in just, I'm not really specifically just talking about any country there. 
Like, I don't know, it could... But I don't... Like, of course, like, if something happens, then it is gonna happen. Like it did with World War One and World War Two. Like, just something happened and then everything was on fucking fire. So, yeah. Today, humankind has broken the law of the jungle. There is at least real peace and not just absence of war. For most polities, 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 there is no plausible scenario leading to full-scale conflict within one year. What could lead to war between Germany and France next year? Question mark. Like, actually not that many things. Unless one of them is like, okay, I'm gonna fucking bomb you. Then it's not good. And it's also really not smart. The Nobel Peace Prize to end all peace prizes should have been given to Robert Oppenheimer and his fellow architects of the atomic bomb. Nuclear weapons have turned war between superpowers into collective suicide and made it impossible to seek world domination by force of arms. Yes, because if one starts, we're all gonna be fucking dead. And, and you know, we're we not gonna kill ourselves. It's not a good idea. I'm not gonna do that. Unless, you know, unless you really just don't care, then, then I think you're also gonna do that. But I just, nah. I just, nah. You know? <laughs> I just, nah. Um, for most of history, polities could enrich themselves by looting or annexing enemy territories. Most wealth consisted of material things like fields, cattle, slaves and gold, so it was easy to loot it or occupy it. Today wealth consists mainly of human capital and organizational know-how. Conse consequently, it is difficult to carry it off or conquer it by military force. What would happen if the Chinese were to amount an armed invasion of California? Land a million soldiers on the beaches of San Francisco and Storm Island? Or inland? No. They would gain little. There are no silicon mines in Silicon Valley. The wealth resides in the minds of Google engineers and Hollywood script doctors, directors and special effects wizards who would be on the first plane to Bangalore or Mumbai long before the Chinese tanks rolled into Sunset Boulevard. It is not coincidental that the few full-scale international wars that will take place in the world such as the Iraq invasion of Kuwait occur in places where wealth is old-fashioned material wealth. The Kuwait shakes or shikes, it could flee abroad, but the oil fields stayed put and were occupied. Yes, indeed, you know, there is something that we can steal, so we're gonna fucking do that. And, and I mean, for war, there always has to be a reason. Like, nobody starts a fucking war um, without any reason. I do want to point out that I believe that it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge thing, you know, it doesn't have to be like, wow, you know, this person did such a lot of things, so I really have to do something, but rather like, you know, this person did something and now gonna fight back and it is what it is. At least this is how I sometimes feel about it. Um, I mean, of course, you know, of course, I'm gonna see things differently than the president of whatever. And then, yeah, you know what I mean. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna see things differently. And they lived happily ever after. Though the last few decades have been an unprecedented uh, gold age for humanity, it is too early to know whether this represents a fundamental shift in the currents of history or an ephemeral edgy of good fortune. But the most important findings of all is that happiness doesn't really depend on objective conditions or of either wealth, health or even community. Well, I'm not sure about health though. Rather, it depends on your correlation between objective conditions and subjective expectations. If you want a Bullock chart and get a Bullock chart, you are content. If you want a brand new Ferrari and get only a second-hand Fiat, you feel deprived. <laughs> but I mean, uh, let's, let's, let's think about expectations there, you know? This is why winning the lottery has over time the same impact on people's happiness as a debilating car accident. When things improve, expectations balloon and consequently even dramatic improvements in objective conditions can leave us dissatisfied. After all, our chimpanzee cousins seldom wash and never change their clothes. 
nor are we disgusted by the fact that our pet dogs and cats don't shower or change their coats daily. We pet, hug and kiss them all the same. If happiness, by, by the way, this is actually a pretty good point. If happiness is determined by expectations, then two pillars of our society, mass media and the advertising industry, may unwillingly be depleting the global s- uh, reservoirs of contentment. Suppose science comes up with cures for all disease, effective anti-aging therapies and regenerative treatments to keep people infinitely young. In all likelihood, the Im- immediate result will be an unprecedented ap- epidemic of anger and anxiety. Some scholars compare human biochemistry to an air conditioning system that keeps the temperature constant come heatwave or snowstorm. Events might momentarily change the temperature, but the air conditioning system always returns the temperature to the same set point. Take the work involved in raising a child. Kane Man found that when counting moments of joy and moments of drudgery, bringing up a child turns out to be a rather unpleasant affair. It consists largely of changing nappies, washing dishes, and dealing with the temper tantrums, which nobody likes to do. Yet most parents declare that their children are their chief source of happiness. Does it mean that people don't really know what's good for them? I don't think so. I think it's just, you know, it could really be about uh, not seeing the whole spectrum, but just focusing on some things. But he says that's one option. And artists that the findings demonstrate that happiness is not the surplus of pleasant over unpleasant moments. Rather, happiness consists in seeing one's life in its uh, eternity as meaningful and worthwhile, which, at my point of view, is a fucking big thing. The scientist who says her life is meaningful because she increases the store of human knowledge, the soldier who declares that his life is meaningful because he fights to defend his homeland, and the entrepreneur who finds meaning in building a new company are no less delusional than their medieval counterparts who found meaning in reading scriptures, going on a crusade, or building a new cathedral. As long as my personal narrative is in line with the narratives of the people around me, I can convince myself that my life is meaningful and find happiness in that conviction. What is so important about obtaining such e ephemeral prices, why struggle so hard to achieve something that disappears almost as soon as it arises? According to Buddhism, the root of suffering is neither the feeling of pain nor of sadness, nor even of meaninglessness. Rather, the real root of suffering is the never-ending and pointless pursuit of ephemeral feelings which causes us to be in constant state of tension, resentlessness and dissatisfaction. Yeah, 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 yeah. The end of Homo sapiens. What would happen, for example, if we develop a cure for Alzheimer's disease that, as a side side benefit, could dramatically improve the memories of healthy people? Would anyone be able to hold the relevant research? And when the cure is developed, could any law enforcement agency limit it to Alzheimer's patients and prevent healthy people from using it to acquire super memories? Probably not. Imagine another possibility. Suppose you could back up your brain to a portal portable hard drive and then turn it on your laptop would your laptop be able to think and feel just like a sapiens if so would it be your would it be you or someone else what if computer programs could create an entirely new but digital mind composed of computer code complete with a sense of self-consciousness and memory if you run a program on your computer would it be a person if you deleted it could you be charged with murder when a nuclear age erupted in 1940s many forecasts were made about the future nuclear world of the year 2000. When Sputnik and Apollo 2, or the second, fired the imagination of the world, everyone began predicting that by the end of the century, people would be living in space colonies on Mars and Pluto. Few of these forecasts came true. On the other hand, nobody foresaw the internet. Indeed. And I think we just still think about the future like that. Like, I imagine that I'm gonna have my fucking flying cars pretty soon. I'm all as hope, let's put it like this. The only thing we can try to do is to influence the direction scientists are taking. But science, 
Uh, but since we might soon be able to engineer and desires, our desires too, the real question facing us is not what do we want to become, but what do we want to want? Those who are not spooked by this question probably haven't given it enough thought. Yes, spooked by this question, not spooked, spooked. What do we want? It's, it's uh, yeah, it's a good idea. The animal that became a god. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? Question mark. Uh, it's fucked up. It would be. It would be. And so this is actually the end of it. And I think even though this last episode and the episode before was heavily reading, you know, a lot of reading there, but but I'm fine with that to an extent of, you know, to, to, to a certain extent. I know sometimes it pisses me off, but I think in this case, since also the the, 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 the reading part wasn't that bad, I uh, feel pretty pretty fine about it. But it's been a really good book and a really nice book about just a lot of fucking interesting ideas and a lot of things that I that I appreciate that I just appreciate a lot of thoughts that 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 I just like and I mean I gotta have to say that um, I gotta have to say that uh, he really is good in in these things and because I've had a look at him and I just you know I, I didn't do a lot of research and I didn't just do like a, um, a lot of just googling that and whatnot, but I've just had a look at his website and and I have seen that he's actually specialized in all these things that he's talking about, which on one hand just makes sense, but on the other hand is like is like pretty broad. I know it's a pretty broad subject or a pretty broad set of subjects, uh, like from economics to just history, medieval history, and then um, also about Homo sapiens and, and all that stuff. So it's 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 fairly broad, but still he was able to get relatively deep into that but but something that was just interesting to me is that this is just what he is specialized in this is just something that he's interested in no more no less you know because it feels to be just some some sort of encyclopedia you know it just feels so so and i also thought about it as such a thing but i do not want to say that it is not it is i think you know at least as far as i can tell you know, as far as I can tell by just only going through a summary of it, um, I think it is pretty interesting, pretty cool, a lot, a lot of great thoughts, yeah, well, yeah, I think I'm gonna end the episode there, because I don't want to stretch it unnecessarily, the question of the day, the question of the day is, what could you make, what could you change, what could you say, that is really gonna make somebody else's life better, and nice, and good, what could you make, think about that, please. And yeah, with that being said, I wish you the health, the best healthful happiness and all success and also hope that you're going to remind yourself and you're going to be remembered which basically means your legacy basically means just being a nice person and then being remembered as a nice person, which is always a good thing, I guess. You know, first of all, purpose. Second of all, business idea, which is the next three questions. Why are you here? What are you trying to change and what's bothering you the most? These three questions can eventually show you your purpose and even a business idea, which is, I think, pretty amazing. P- purpose and just meaningfulness in life alone it's good enough yeah i'm hopefully gonna see the next time i really appreciate all the time and attention and and things i hope that i've been able to just give you some things that are interesting to you so yeah i'm gonna see you and thank you very much i just really appreciate it thank you thank you